So I had a choice to make. I could either bow out, feel sorry for myself, live the rest of my life, you know, in that state of mind, or I could choose to participate. Um, I could choose to step back into the arena. Maya, welcome to Women of Impact. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. As a behavioral and cognitive scientist, like I really want to dig deep into what is happening to us right now as the world has changed and the way that we see our lives has changed because I think we're reassessing what is going to make us happy and what life do we actually want. And so we all may have an idea of what that looks like, but the act to start changing can be so petrifying. And so I want to start with a quote of yours. The reason why we have so much discomfort and anxiety in the face of change is because it threatens our sense of identity. And so I really want to start there. What is happening to our brains and to us that is perceiving um, a change to be so threatening? Yeah, I mean, that quote uh, has origins in a very personal story of mine, um, because when I was a teenager, I was on the, the fast track to trying to become a professional violinist. So from the time that I was six years old, the violin really was my life. Um, I committed so much time to it. And when I was nine, I started studying at the Juilliard School of Music in New York. And then when I was 13, Itzhak Perlman um, asked me to be his private violin student. And he's, you know, um, broadly perceived as you know, the best violinist of our time. And so all of this exciting stuff was happening in my life. I felt like having Perlman take me in as, as a student gave me that vote of confidence that maybe I had what it, take, what it would take to become a professional. And then um, just in a moment, all of my, my dreams ended because I had a sudden hand injury um, that prevented me from being able to play the violin again. And I remember in that moment, Lisa, realizing, wow, the violin isn't just a thing that I've been doing that I love. The violin is me. Like it is such a core part of who I am. It's how I define myself. Um, to this day, I have uh, signs of that. So my right shoulder is slightly elevated relative to my left because of all the hours I spent doing this in a practice room. Um, and when people would ask me, you know, who are you? I felt like I was first and foremost a violinist. Even before I was Maya, I was a violinist. And so when I lost the ability to play, at the peak of my career, it really, it led me to ask all of these existential questions about who, who, who am I, right? Like, who am I without this instrument? And that's where this, this seed of the role that identity plays and in, in how we navigate change uh, came to be. Because I think in that moment, I was grieving the loss of the instrument, but actually in many ways I was grieving the loss of a huge part of myself and I didn't know what to make of it. So when 2020 hit and I, like so many other people, were feeling completely overwhelmed by the rapid pace of change that was happening around us, um, looked to that childhood experience almost for comfort. <laughs> like, you know, I've done this rodeo, this change rodeo once before. Maybe there's something I can learn from my former self about how to navigate this new moment, right? The specifics of the changes that we're going through right now might be different. But maybe the psychological strategies that I use to navigate the moment and, and the different ways that I can see my own self sense of self-identity or my the community that I live in, um, that all came into play. And 
uh, it ultimately led me to start my podcast, The Slight Change of Plans, because I realized, look, if I'm, I'm looking to my former self for insight, surely there are people all over the world who are much wiser, who can give us tons of insights on how it is that we can navigate these moments of change um, and try to get out stronger and with some growth on the other side. That's so powerful. Now I'd really love to just really dig deep into that story because there's so many moments that to me, you decided to keep going. You decided to make that change, but so many people don't. And, you know, for you to, you know, when you go to um, go to the White House and you basically like knock on the door and it's like, hey, you know, I, I want a job here. I mean, you know, it's it's that type of thing that goes how do some people get the life that they want and they dream of and some people stay in where they are for their entire lives and aren't able to take that first step in making the change in the first place and so you've said you know like the threat of self and the, the threat of identity but um so i'd actually love to go deeper on that identity piece and why we feel tight and hold strong to certain identities and how that can be detrimental to us and there's two people that i've heard you use great examples um elna is i believe is her name um and scott and if you don't mind actually breaking down their two stories and their identities and how people can actually perceive them differently because i think if we can really dig deep there might be these gold nuggets that's like these are the things that we need to take upon ourselves to then make a change in our life to have the life we really want yeah well first of all i mean i think it's so important for all of us to have a growth mindset around our ability to embrace change. So rather than thinking of yourself as, oh, I'm the kind of person that is stuck and I'm the kind of person that thrives, I think it's actually better uh, to be a little more open-minded about the way in which we can respond to change um, and to at least hit our maximum, right? Whatever that maximum is, right? We might all have some aversion to change. We might all like the status quo to varying degrees. I, I for one, love ritual. I love uh, things being constant. I don't like change. Um, oftentimes, I think it disorients me, but I have learned how to kind of like push that a bit. But to wrap up my personal story, because I, th I think this extends into the stories around Elna and Scott, there's this concept in cognitive science called identity foreclosure. And it refers to the idea that we can become really fixed in our sense of self, certainly in adolescence, but that can actually persist well into adulthood. And what that means is that it can prevent us from being exploratory, from actually thinking, oh, what are all the other identities that I might be able to occupy, right? Like I've thought of myself as a violinist for so long, but you know, maybe I could be other things. Maybe it could be other, um, maybe I could inhabit other identities. And looking back, Lisa, I 1 million percent fell prey to identi identity foreclosure as a 15 year old, like absolutely. 1 million percent, that would have been the diagnosis. And so what I had to learn kind of painfully over the years, because let me tell you, initially I was just heartbroken and despondent and had no idea what would come next. So it's a very normal part of the grieving process when you lose something that you love and you're not sure you'll find something in the future you love as much as you love that is, I started to think differently about my identity. Instead of attaching my self-identity to a very specific pursuit, like the violin, a very specific thing. I asked myself, what are the features of the thing that bring me joy, that make me feel passion, right? And what I realized in reflecting back on my life as a violinist is that, sure, I mean, I loved the physical instrument. I loved the way it sounded. I loved being able to produce music. But the thing that I loved the most was being able to emotionally connect with people that I'd never 
met before, right? So as a kid, you go on stage and there's thousands of strangers in a room and within moments through your music, you could potentially get them to feel something they've never felt before. And that's an incredibly powerful, moving thing. And what that helped me realize is, oh, you love human connection. That's the thing that gets you to tick. That's the thing that you love. It's, it's connecting with other human beings. And so, yes, I can't find that in the violin, but maybe I can find that elsewhere. And ultimately I found cognitive science as a field where I actually study the science of human nature and human behavior and what it even means to connect with others and um, what kinds of biases drive our emotional states and our decision-making, right? It's just been this fascinating exploration to what makes us stick here. And so I hope it's a reassuring message to people who are in the midst of change, who are finding themselves um, in a state of frenzy um, because they don't know what comes next to realize that if you, can, if you can identify the things that make you happy about the things you do and more strongly attach yourself to those things, those features, rather than the thing itself, it's going to give you a more stable self-identity as you move through a world that will inevitably change, right? And that was certainly the case for me and it helped me realize that, you know, it, it, on the face of it, it looks like I've done so many different things, right? She was a violinist and then she was an academic as a cognitive scientist. And then she worked in public policy in the Obama White House. Now she's doing this podcast. But actually there is a through line, um, which is that every moment I've been trying to either understand the human condition or connect directly with human beings on this planet um, to try to either make things better for them as I did with public policy or try and share change stories so that we can feel um, a sense of unity as we go through these changes together. God, Maya, that's so freaking powerful. Um, and there's something that you said that I was like, oh my God, I like it hit me like a ton of bricks about you grieving the identity that you had. And I really want to dive deep into that because I had to grieve the thought that I was going to be a mother. And so uh, growing up, I thought I was going to have kids. I thought I was going to be, you know, a very traditional Greek Orthodox wife. And once I decided and found the love of my life, apart from my husband, but business, I started to realize I didn't want children. But there was a part of me that still had that attachment to it. And I realized I had to grieve it. I had to just allow myself the space to say, I thought I was going to be this. I'm no longer this to my own decision making. But it's still the important process to be able to embrace change. Yeah, first of all, I love you, that you shared that. And um, in many ways, I had a very similar experience that I actually shared on a slight change of plans last year where my husband, Jimmy, and I lost identical twin girls to a miscarriage with our, our beloved surrogate, Haley. And it was our second pregnancy loss uh, with our surrogate. And it's so interesting, um, Lisa, how the 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 motivations, the reasons why um, we we both ended up in this place are very different, but actually we were both grieving the loss of this identity because I think when I first saw those positive pregnancy tests, instinctively in the same way that when you were young and you always thought that you would be a mother, you kind of gave yourself that label. Mm -hmm. I gave myself that label. And then when it was taken away from me, um, I felt profound grief. And um, I, I think that is something that we can underestimate because we think in that moment, I'm grieving the loss of these babies that could have been, but actually I'm also grieving that I am no longer a mother. And, and you know, 20 minutes before the miscarriage, I felt like I was. 
And so um, I, I completely, I, I, just, I so appreciate, first of all, you're sharing that journey. And, and I think that's, that's a beautiful thing to also come to the re realization of what it is that you want in your life. And sometimes what you want in your life turns out to not be what you thought it would be. You know, there's another principle in cognitive science, which shows us just how terrible we are at cognitive forecasting. We think we can predict five years, 10 years into the future about how happy different things will make us. Um, I'm a type A planner, right? So I'm like, oh, this is, this is the five-year plan. This is the 10-year plan. And the thing that's been more humbling than anything is to realize how my own preferences have changed. So it's not just that the world around me has changed. The things that I thought I desperately wanted, I no longer want, or the things that I never thought I would have wanted, suddenly I do find myself wanting. And so um, from what I'm hearing, that sounds very similar to, to the path that you've been on. And, and one thing that I've learned from making this show that I could not have expected beforehand is, I think if you would ask me, hey, Maya, you know, how, how would you compartmentalize change in this world? And I would say, oh, there's the willed, expected change, the stuff that you want to see happen. And then there's the unwilled, unexpected change. And I think instinctively I would have said, oh, I really, I, I would give very different advice to people who are going through those very, very different mm -hmm. types of change. And now I no longer, I no longer have this, um, dividing line in the sand that breaks up these two types of changes. Because I actually think to my earlier point about being bad cognitive forecasters, um, we surprise ourselves all the time in the face of what we think will be a positive change, but actually turns out to be a lot more complicated with some negative spillover effects. And we surprise ourselves in the face of negative unwanted change, because we maybe feel that we've grown and that there's some silver linings and that it actually was empowering to go through something. And so um, now my advice is to actually go through uh, change with a profound amount of humility. That's the biggest advice I give to people, which is don't be too confident about how it is you think you will respond to any given change. There's lots of spillover effects. Change doesn't happen in a vacuum. So you've just taken this new job. You think it's going to be the best job ever and you love it, but oh, you don't realize you're actually going to change as a person. And maybe your relationships will change as a result of having this new job, right? We don't, change doesn't happen in these nice little neat vacuums where it's like, yep, it's just me, Maya in full. And then I just like go through the magic mirror, but I come out with a new job, right? We're these really complex ecosystems. And so the psychological strategies that we recruit in the face of of will change and unwill change can actually be very similar. And I think we just saw this play out in our in our respective lives, mm. right? Where we found ourselves grieving a loss of an identity and trying to pick up the pieces and figuring out who we could be without that identity. You know, for me, maybe just for now, hopefully not forever, but maybe it might be forever, in which case I have to kind of come to terms with that. And for you, figuring out, okay, who am I now that this identity that I thought I had for so long growing up is no longer um, the life that I want to lead. And this tees up Scott's story nicely, which is um, in many ways, his story is all about self-identity in the face of a big change. So a little backstory on Scott. Um, he's a 30, he was 32 years old uh, when I first talked to him. And he's a software engineer that builds cancer detection tools. And he's also a self-proclaimed health nut. So for the last 10 years or so, he's been doing everything in his power to try to optimize for his future health. Um, and Lisa, I'm talking everything, okay? High intensity interval training, intermittent fasting, veganism, turmeric on food, chia seeds on food. Like if it's in a book somewhere saying that it'll help prevent diminishment or optimize for future well-being, Scott's done it. 
If you own your own business, when an employee leaves your company, whether on good terms or bad, it can feel, I hate to say it, but it actually can feel personal, like you and you alone are the one to blame. And it actually may even trigger you to lock down your business, not open yourself up and not actually risk trying anyone else. Like you actually would your heart after a bad breakup and avoid looking for that new partner altogether. Well, let's face it, sometimes we can do that with hires as well. And trust me, guys, I've been there. I get the thought of bringing in a new stranger into your business actually fills your heart with more anxiety than it does love and joy. But when you post your jobs on LinkedIn, you can actually feel the confidence that you will find the right person for the right job fast because LinkedIn isn't actually just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion billion with a B professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Because guys, it gives you access to professionals that you actually can't find anywhere else. And so LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive, which then makes hiring with confidence easy when you have that many quality candidates. And it's so easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get qualified candidates within 24 hours. So post your jobs for free at linkedin.com slash Lisa. That's linkedin.com slash Lisa to post your job for utterly free. And of course, terms and conditions always apply. As an entrepreneur, one of the biggest challenges you will face is the negative voice in your head. You know who I'm talking about? That may be not so small part of you that loudly doubts your abilities to actually pull the things off and make a living from your passion project. But you've got to overcome that negative voice in your head, homie, because I'm telling you, you can do it especially if you use Shopify. Now, Shopify is an all-in-one global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From launching your business to hitting a million dollars, Shopify has got you completely covered. And with all the built-in Magic AI award-winning customer service and the internet's best converting checkout, you have everything you need to shut down the voice of doubt and make all your amazing business dreams a reality. That's exactly why, guys, I love Shopify. So if you want to start growing your business with more customers and sales, shut that negative voice down and prove her wrong that you can do it, Shopify is here for you. So go and sign up for just $1 a month with your trial period at shopify.com slash lisa all lowercase. Again, guys, you can go to shopify.com slash Lisa right now to grow your business no matter where you are and what stage it's in. That's shopify.com slash Lisa. And then tragically in 2020, he received a stage four bone cancer diagnosis that led him to have to pack up his bags, move to MD Anderson in Texas, have his right leg amputated below the knee, a vertebra removed from his spine, surgery on his other leg, and 18 administrations of chemotherapy while he was in Texas. And this was Scott's worst nightmare come true, as you can imagine, because he had literally done everything he possibly could to avoid exactly this outcome. And then here it was happening to him. And he said how much he struggled with his sense of self-identity. I remember it was so stirring. He, He defined himself for so long as like this fit health guy, right? So he said, what's so fascinating is that on any given day, Maya, I'm more worried about the fact I've lost my six pack than I am about the fact that I might die. And I think that shows you how much we attach ourselves to the things that we do in our lives, the things that we care about, right? That it's not like we just stop caring about those things suddenly because we've had this (laughs) unbelievably horrific thing happen to us, right? We we still care. And, And Scott was saying, 
that through this whole process of quote diminishment, um, where he found you know parts of his body um, being taken out of him, um, and he you know now has a prosthetic leg and he's just reckoning with a future that is uncertain. He said, I'm starting to realize that maybe my identity is more malleable than I thought. My identity is negotiable now, right? Like maybe like I am still Scott and I still feel like Scott, even though these things have been taken away from me. And it's a process for sure. But I thought it was such a, it was such a beautiful way to express what we've been talking about throughout this whole conversation, which is this notion of getting so attached to our sense of self-identity that um, we end up mourning their loss in the face of a big change. And what Scott was doing was actively trying to revisit what was foundational to who he was, right? And actually maybe there are things that he wanted to change about himself um, now that he was going through this experience. And uh, yeah, it was just a nice reminder of identity foreclosure and, and what a salient role that plays in so many of our lives. That's so powerful. And, you know, it really is when something happens that forces us to, like in Scott's case, right, it really forced him to. He didn't have a choice. It came to, you know, he had the cancer. And so he had the choice of sticking to his identity of this is who I am and now it's destroyed. Or like you said, negotiating and then using that as a catalyst now into a different part of his life. And it's so powerful because... So many of us, I think, have, um, because of what's happened in the world over the last two years, we've been forced into a different way of thinking. And so many of us become paralyzed because of it and feel very lost. And I think that that's the part of going from feeling lost to renegotiating who you are and how you saw your life. This so is reminding me of is, is a guest, uh, her name is Christine Ha. She's a Vietnamese American and she grew up eating these amazing delicious traditional foods that her mom would make for her. And so when she was in college, she actually took up cooking as a hobby because um, she was eager to reconnect with her Vietnamese, Vietnamese heritage and also uh, reconnect with her mother who she had lost to cancer when she, was, when she was a teenager. And so she's cultivating this hobby. She's falling in love with it. Um, it's such a joyful experience and then in her early 20s, she gets a very rare um, autoimmune diagnosis that leaves her legally blind by age 24. And in addition to so much else that she needs to figure out about her life, she is mourning the fact that she can no longer cook. And she's feeling, you know, she says, I was feeling sorry for myself. I was feeling alienated from my social community. Like, why are my friends not caring as much as I am about this? Why are they still able to laugh and be happy? Um, and I'm not able to laugh and be happy. And so she's feeling all these things. But the thing she felt more than anything, um, Lisa, is grieving the loss of her independence. So it turns out that when she lost her mother at a young age, the one thing that she had learned to cultivate was independence because it taught her that you can't depend on people too much because sometimes you can lose them in a moment. And so as she was going blind, the idea that she would again have to rely on people, that she would lose her independence was so devastating to her that she didn't know how to pick up the pieces. And to your point, she just felt paralyzed um, with fear and angst and anxiety. And then she has this turning point, which is amazing. She said, there's this moment where you wake up and you realize 
in the same way that the day after my mom died, people were still driving to work and the sun was still rising, the sun was still setting. The world was still moving on with or without me. So I had a choice to make. I could either bow out, feel sorry for myself, live the rest of my life, you know, in that state of mind, or I could choose to participate. Um, I could choose to step back into the arena and guess freaking what? <laughs> she did that and more, okay? Today, Christine is a world-renowned chef. She goes by the nickname, The Blind Cook. She was oh the winner God. of the reality TV show, Master Chef. Whoa. Like Gordon had lots of nice stuff to say about her. And you know that he's a harsh critic. Yes. Um, yeah, she owns two restaurants in Houston, Texas. She's written this New York Times bestselling cookbook. She is living an incredible life. And, you know, obviously there was so much hard work and dedication and whatnot, but really it was her reassessing her relationship with independence that was the big change for her. So what she shared with me after all of this is, you know, she makes this decision that she wants to participate in life again, but she still feels with a lot of, a lot of agita that it requires reliance on other people, right? She didn't like that. She's a very independent person. And so what she told me is that she's come to redefine what independence means to her. She said, I used to think of independence as not relying on other people. And now I think of independence as living the life you want to live. And it was so beautiful. She said, living the life I want to live means sometimes I do have to ask for help because I can't be delusional here. I'm not going to be able to drive myself to work. I'm not going to be able to read my mail uh, when it comes in. Um, but there are times where it's okay to ask for help. And then there are other times, she said, where I know I can do the thing on my own and it's going to be frustrating, but I do it anyway. She said, I drive my husband crazy sometimes because I will insist on opening a jar by myself, even though he's like, honey, just let me do that for you. And she's like, no, this is one place I feel like I definitely can be independent and I'm going to do it. So um, that's an example of taking a part of your identity and reassessing what that part of your identity even should mean in the first place, right? So it doesn't mean that you have to let go of identities. I mean, I'm trying to draw a parallel with my own life now, which is, okay, maybe I'm not actively a mother. That doesn't mean that I can't play a maternal role. What does it mean to be a mother? It means to nourish others, to um, you know, maybe help lift up the community that you live in. I can be an amazing aunt to my nieces and nephews. Like it, it just, she got me thinking about how sometimes the, the labels or the roles that we want to occupy um, or the traits that we want to embody, like independence, we might want to revisit from time to time to make sure that our working model of what that thing ought to mean um, really aligns with our values and our, and our long-term goals. Oh my God, Maya, thank you so much for saying that because I had to go through the same process when I decided not to have children because I'm very nurturing. What was interesting though is I had to process it because I had learned and I'd been taught my whole life that being a mother means you're nurturing and that you care for people. And so I had interpreted that to mean that if I'm not a mother, I'm not that. And I actually had people, I actually had people that said to me, isn't that selfish? So now I started to internalize what other people were telling me that my decision not to have children is selfish. Also, all the, the messaging that I got growing up as a Greek Orthodox girl, where it's like, you're going to be a mother, you're going to be, you know, a wife, that's going to be your identity. And now I had to not only say I'm okay with it, 
But also, this doesn't define me in the way that I thought it would define me. I am still nurturing. I do still love people. I am still very caring. And I ha- but I had to reinforce that in me because I'd so learn when it comes to identity and labels, like you said, that a mother is this and a mo- not being a mother is this. And I had to say that's in my own head. That's BS. And I get to, to like you said about the um, her, her independence, I get to choose what not being a mother looks like to me. Yep. No, I think that's exactly right. And so when we find ourselves struggling in the face of a big change because we're losing even a feature of something that we like, because we talked at first, like try not to attach yourself to the specific thing. Well, what happens when you're like, independence is my thing, right? And then all of a sudden you feel like that's being stripped away from you. Yeah. Well, maybe you should think about what that actual feature really means, or, or, or like I said, ought to mean, um, given, given what your goals are, you know, and how, what, the kind of life that you want to live, to Christine's point. Yeah. And I love that in like flipping the perspective, flipping the way that we see things, right? That is all, I believe, a decision that we make. Okay, I see it this way, but I can choose to see it another way and then figure out how I can then see it. How does that then relate to behavior and habits? Because we all build habits based on the way that we show up every day. And now if we're changing the way we're going to show up or the direction we're going in, um, how do we unwire habits in order to then recreate new ones to adopt this new life and this change that we want to make? Yeah, I mean, I will say it's a very, habit formation is tough, obviously. Um, and it, it, it's a very incremental process. <laughs> so you can't expect to see profound shifts overnight. Um, but I will say, you know, there's this, there's this concept very colloquially known in psychology as like the foot in the door perspective, which basically refers to the idea that When you just take that initial step where you're committing to a new set of habits, a new way of being, um, just the mere fact you've taken that step can signal to your brain that that's something that you value and care about. And so Mm -hmm. whether it's signing up for a gym membership or filling out a voter registration form or, you know, signing up for like, I don't know, vegetable meal service, whatever it is. Um, you know, those that's on the lighter side, that can actually really impact um, the future choices that our brain makes because we don't, we like to think of ourselves as good decision makers. So, if, you know, two days ago, Maya signing up for the gym, I like to believe that she made a good choice and that she was actually, she knew what she cared about, right? And so I might be more likely to actually stay the course and, and commit to those things moving forward. Yeah, I'd love to talk about Elna because when you, we decide, okay, this is what I want. This is the dream I'm going to go after, right? And we take that first step, like you said. So now we're reinforcing it. We feel good about it. And we start to walk, work towards our goals. We change the way we see ourselves. We think that we're on the path. This is going to be my happiness. But then we actually realize it changes other parts of us um, in a negative way. Um, can you, do you mind walking us through that and then how we can prevent that? Yeah, I mean, Elena's story taught me so much in in many ways. She's the reason that I no longer uh, differentiate between, you know, expected and unexpected willed and unwilled change because I don't know if I see as much of a distinction anymore in terms of how we should respond. But basically, Elna's dream from the time she was young was to be thin. She thought that if she could just lose weight, it would lead to her dream life. And so in a very, very short amount of time and in a very unhealthy manner, she lost a ton of weight. I think it was like a hundred pounds in, in five months or so. And for a moment there, she did feel like she was living her dream life. And 
all of a sudden she starts noticing that it's changing her as a person in ways that she doesn't fully like or appreciate. So she's noticing that she's becoming more self-conscious. She's losing some of the boldness that she used to have. Um, she's less outspoken um, and is is falling prey to more social norms, right? Than she used to be. She used to be the you know the bold kid that would speak her mind, and suddenly she suddenly she finds herself kind of cowering a bit more. Um, she thinks she's a worse person, that she's less kind and less empathetic to other people. And so what Elna realized from this was, you know, I thought that I was just going to step through a magic mirror. I was going to be Elna through and through, and I was just going to be the thin version of Elna. And, you know, I, I use this as a metaphor, the magic mirror, but this actually happened to her. This is what inspired her. She went to like an amusement park with her family when she was younger, and they didn't have those mirrors, those distortionary mirrors. And so she did see a thin version of her um, that she aspired to have. And so she did imagine that it would be like a magic trick, where she would just walk through the mirror and that would be her life. And then what she learned is that change is actually wildly complex. And you not only lack control over how you might respond uh, to all those internal changes that are happening, but you don't control how other people respond differently to you and how that will in turn affect what's happening internally. So there's this, it can either be a virtuous cycle or it can be a vicious cycle, but it doesn't always lead us to the end goal. And I think that that whole experience gave her some humility um, around just how confident we should be that the if only if statement is really the case, right? Oh, I'll be happy only if this happens. Oh, I'm, I'm waiting to be happy until this. Chances are <laughs> that thing is not going to give you that full dose of clean, you know, unadulterated joy and happiness that you thought it was it would. And similarly, you know, when when it comes to Scott's story, you know, I, I'm so happy to say, by the way, he now um, he, his scans show no evidence of cancer. He's wow, that's amazing. His full treatment. And so I invited him back on the show to, to share what life mm. has been like after treatment. Um, but he said he continues to marvel at the fact that his quote emotional thermostat has prevailed through all this that he even though there's been so much hardship and so much pain it feels actually quite easy to focus on the good moments that are just as good as they were before and to to have gratitude for all of the wonderful things that he does have in his life and that's been surprising for him. And he's also felt that he's grown and he was joking. And he's like, Maya, part of me thinks I just need a good kick in the ass because I feel like I'm a much better person today than I was before all of this. Um, and so in many ways, Scott surprised himself because he thought this would only be a terrible thing. And actually there were many, many silver linings that he continues to um, benefit from every day, you know, follow, following his treatment. Ooh, it's so hard though in those moments to see that silver lining like how 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 do you do that you know because the emotion in those moments where you're just crestfallen like that is a real emotion that is a real feeling and in those moments where someone's like no see the silver line like you sometimes just want to like be like oh how am I going to see the silver like it doesn't feel real right it doesn't feel right and it just feels like words so how do you actually I do that. Yeah, I could not agree more. Look, I experienced exactly this yeah. um, in the fall when, you know, as I mentioned earlier, my my husband, Jimmy, and I lost um, identical twin girls to a miscarriage with our surrogate, Haley, and we were grieving loss on many levels. And so we were so heartbroken. Like, th th I, those days events are cemented in my mind. I woke up thinking, 
we're having a baby. Haley texts our surrogate Haley texts us saying uh, she started to bleed. Um, and then she goes to the doctor, actually we find out we're having twins and they're super healthy in there. And all of a sudden, like my emotions are up here and I'm so thrilled and so excited. And then an hour later, she miscarries the twins. And all at once the dreams crash. And they were also told that you probably um, can't work with this person who you've just grown to love. Like she became a member of our family. And so I remember that night I was, I was just so grief stricken and um, I was so sad. And, you know, I'm, I'm lucky to have an incredibly loving, supportive husband, um, but he pushes me in moments where sometimes it can help a lot where you're lying in bed and I was having trouble falling asleep. And he said, turns on the lights. He's like, okay, we're doing gratitude lists. And I was like, Jimmy, get out of here. The last thing that I want to be doing right now is a gratitude list. Okay. And there I was like talking the talk in my day job being like gratitude science. Like the, we know this stuff works, but in the throes of that moment, Lisa, I did not want to be drafting a gratitude list. And so, but Jimmy pushed me, he said, we can stop at any point, but like, what's the worst thing that can happen to just remind ourselves um, of, of all the other stuff we have in, in our lives. And so I begrudgingly followed those orders and together, you know, we're just going back and forth. This is one thing I'm grateful for that he would go and then I would go and he would go. And I will tell you, it didn't make the pain any less in that moment, but what it did give me is perspective. I think what happens in the throes of grief or pain is that we get tunnel vision and we think that that is the only component of our life that carries value and meaning and importance, right? And what the gratitude exercise did for me is it allowed me to zoom out and see my life through a more holistic, rich, diverse lens. That there were so many components that I had almost been taking for granted or ignoring in the preceding months as all the logistics of surrogacy were coming underway and we were planning for this pregnancy and you just get, everything is thrown into that bucket. And so I left that exercise with my husband feeling my life is more than this area and it's more than this pain in this moment. And what a gift. And I just let a little bit out. And that was, um, yeah, that was a gift that night. And I'm so glad that I did it. So if my experience can inspire people who are like they're right now in the throes of a breakup or they've lost someone that they love or they've lost their job or, you know, pain knows no bounds and it takes all forms. Um, so there's countless ways in which we can feel pain. It will feel awful in the beginning to try to remind yourself of things that bring you joy and happiness because it's so jarring, right? The juxtaposition of like some of this worst, this, these horrible feelings with positivity just like confuses the brain. Mm -hmm. But if you just get over that initial hump of just maybe answering the question once, giving up one thing, um, I've, I've certainly seen a lot of positive returns. And so it also powerful. motivated me as I was thinking about gratitude. One of the things that I was grateful for was that I was currently hosting a show that was all about navigating unexpected and expected changes. And that I had, I had this incredible gift that all of my guests had given me over the preceding year, which was their vulnerability and their willingness to open up to me about what it is that worked or didn't work and the ways in which they felt healed or broken after a change. And I just felt like I was wiser as a result. And that, um, 
there was also a therapeutic quality for them that they shared with me and coming on my show and processing their changes out loud. And that is what ultimately inspired me to be a guest on my own show, to turn the mics and two days later to have my producer interview me about my own slight change of plans. Because I realized in that moment that I'd asked so much of my guests, but I'd never, never given the same mm-hmm. to my listeners for myself. And that in that moment, I needed the show as much as the show needed me. I needed to process my change out loud. I needed to try to find some silver linings. I need to make something good out of this um, experience that otherwise just felt tragic um, because all it involved was loss. And in having that discussion, you know, it helped me realize um, what a better person I was for having had Haley and continuing to have Haley in my life as just a person who has has enriched me and has made me feel um, enlightened about the the kind of humanity that we can show to others when when they're in need. You know, she really taught me that and I'm forever grateful for that. Um, And there were many other um, wonderful things that emerged, including when I put out the episode, I hear from guests all over the world every single day since I put out that episode sharing their losses with me, opening their hearts up to me, pouring out kindness and compassion and warmth and sending it my way. And then I get to do the same in reverse. So like talk about a damn silver lining like that um, is something I could never have expected. And it was inspired in part by my my gratitude exercise that one night where I realized, hey, this thing really means a lot to me and now I'm going to lean into it. Well, thank you for sharing that. That is so um, beautiful and powerful. And there's so much in there. Um, so first of all, I'd like to ask, how do you in those moments, um, I've heard you say, you don't believe in everything happens for a reason. And True story. I'm sorry. I, I know. I do not want you to apologize, girl, because here's <laughs> the thing. I'm such an advocate for... Um, what works for somebody, right, is very true and real. So I go to, I want to pick people's brains and find out what works for people and then be able to adopt it for myself. And I used to have a a problem with that phrase myself in that everything happens for a reason because some things to some people, the loss of a child, I, I don't know how you say that there's a reason behind that, but you can flip your perspective, and everything you just laid out was so powerful. Would you mind actually talking to me a little about that and how some people use it, I think, as empowerment? Um, and what is it that you don't think is empowering? And then how do you use your own mindset to empower yourself, to, to, to literally get on a podcast, like you said, turn the mic on yourself and just vocalize your vulnerability in real time? Yeah, I love that question, Lisa, so much. Um, I don't think things happen for a reason. And I think the primary reason for that is I can't justify the suffering that I see in this world that befalls amazing human beings. And so if things were to happen for a reason, it's like from whose vantage point? I mean, if you live an incredibly happy, joyful life that is free of, of pain, then it might be easy to say things happen for a reason. But then you read a story about just untold suffering. Um, the Sandy Hook massacre. And you think to yourself, how could anybody in this moment say that things happen for a reason? Like how could we ever justify the pain to these children and their parents and the community of Sandy Hook? I can't. And so 
I feel, I mean, I wish I could believe things happen for a reason because I actually think it's like a happier way to live your life. I just feel like if I were to buy into that, I would be buying into a delusion of some kind. And so with that said, I don't believe things happen for a reason. And yet I believe as humans, we are natural born storytellers, which means we try to build narratives and find meaning out of the trials and tribulations in our lives. And I find myself doing this all the time. Like I don't have spiritual or religious beliefs. As I mentioned, I don't think things happen for a reason. And yet when, when I have something terrible happen in my life, I effortlessly try and figure out how to make meaning from it, how to make sense of the tragedy, how to try to find silver linings in what's happened to me, how to, if, if it's just terrible, how to turn it into something good. I have all of these human instincts. And so what this experience has taught me is that no matter what your religious or spiritual beliefs are, I think we all do this as humans. We want to make sense of our lives. We want to feel like it is not just chaos that we're living in. In some ways, it's probably our subconscious way of exerting control over our mm-hmm. lives is to do this meaning making all the time, right? It's this game we play with ourselves to try to make it seem like we aren't just operating in a cloud of randomness all the time, which may be actually what we're operating in. And so even though I don't believe that the storytelling, you know, is cosmic in its significance, you know, that it's like destined by the universe or anything like that, I do find a lot of value in trying to figure out ways that I can find meaning and purpose in in suffering. Um, And I think that is so beautiful, especially you putting it towards the we write our own story, because to that point, I think we can make meaning out of this is because of me, right? And we can make it negative. This is because I'm my internal dialogue. This is because you're no good, Lisa. This is because you're stupid. This is because you have no, right? So I can make meaning out of that and it be detrimental to me. Or I could make meaning out of it that inspires me, that motivates me to do something. Can I can I share another example? I mean, uh, the guests on a slight change of plans, like, whew, they're all so amazing. I like am so in awe of humanity every time I come out of an interview with one of these people that I get to the, the privilege of interviewing. But one of them was um, her name's Yuna Lee. She's a Korean American journalist, and she was trying to capture the plight of North Korean defectors who try to flee North Korea in search of freedom, so cross over the border into China. And while she was there filming footage, she was captured by North Korean soldiers and was held captive for 140 days on North Korean soil soil, and had been told that she was destined to go to a hard labor camp. So she is, um, I don't know if there's an adjective to describe the psychological state when you're being held captive in North Korea, right? And and you think this might be the entirety of your life. She has a four-year-old daughter at home and a husband who she's missing desperately. And she's losing hope at many points along the way, as you can imagine would be the case. But there was one aspect to her experience that to use your language inspired her. And that was completely unexpected. And that was the kindness in humanity that the guards who were put on her case showed her during her time there. She said that they would engage in these small acts of kindness when no one was looking. They didn't want to get in trouble, but to show her that they cared. They would greet her with cherries and her and when her favorite songs would be playing on the radio, they would turn off the volume. Um, one of the female guards on her last day at the complex went to Yuna's room and said, I really hope you get to reunite with your family. 
I really hope that one day you get to see your, your daughter and your husband again. And then there was this other guard who um, would continue to try, her, to try to give her hope, uh, to tell her that it was worth fighting for because she was going to see um, freedom again. She'd grown up in South Korea, so she even taught to see the North, to see the North as the enemy. Mm-hmm. And she said that this experience gave her a much more compassionate view um, of an entire population that she had been taught to hate. And so now that she's returned, she was, you know, she was actually rescued by President, uh, former President Bill Clinton um, and, and brought back to the United States. But she said that now that she's back home and she turns on the news and she sees coverage in North Korea, those images of people who were deeply kind to her, that's also part of North Korea in her mind now. And it's allowed her to not see the world in such black and white terms, but to see people in whole communities with a lot more nuance. And she feels that it's made her a better person as a result. Change is the topic that's on everyone's minds right now. And it fills us with such a complex array of emotions. On the one hand, we feel potentially inspired and excited and like we can start anew. And then on the other on the other hand, we're feeling terrified and anxious and um, despondent and scared and fearful and all those things. And so we, we don't always know how to engage with our own change experiences. And so my goal in making this show was to give people a ticket onto the trains of other people's change journeys, like all aboard. <laughs> and then you can go along with them glean whatever insights you can from their experiences that can potentially help you um, build your own change survival kit, right? Because we're all just trying to survive and get by. And so the more tools we can put into that kit, uh, I think the better off we'll be. Oh my God, I freaking love that. So where can people buy a ticket to jump on board your train <laughs> of change? <laughs> uh, so I'm on Instagram, so you can follow me at Dr. Maya Shankar. So M-A-Y-A-F-H-A-N-K-A-R. Um, and I also have a very light Twitter presence, uh, slight change pod. And then of course my show, a slight change of plans is available anywhere you get podcasts. Um, and it is truly, you know, my passion love project. So I hope people love it as much as I've loved making it. Oh my God. Thank you guys, guys. You've seriously got to go check out her podcast. It is fire. And honestly, this woman is so freaking amazing. What she delivers on a daily basis about the mind and how you show up and living the life you really want isn't going to be freaking easy, but she's a blueprint and a guide, like she said, on how to actually get there. So go check her out. And guys, if you're not following me, follow me at Lisa Billu. And if you're not subscribed, click that subscribe button down there. And until next time, be the hero of your own life. Peace out, guys.